This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Hi, I'm Sheila Farm. I live in Sydney, Australia, and I'm second generation Vietnamese. In terms of my day job, it's complicated. I'm mostly a writer. I also am an editor, radio producer, mostly focusing on documentaries. Um, in terms of my writing collaborations, at the moment I work a lot with artists um, in cultural institutions. I'm also completing a PhD in healthcare, focusing on women's experiences of gestational diabetes, and I'm a casual lecturer in public health ethics. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you, Sheila. I appreciate that. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the million dollar question, really. Um, and it's come up a lot recently um, because of a, some work that I'm doing, which is really focused on Vietnamese language and, and language in general, like what it means to be multilingual in a monolingual world. Like, I think Australia is a little bit like the US. Um, they've been called the graveyard of languages. So it means that a lot of people um, who come with a language, um, and not to mention there were people who already had languages before anyone got here, um, they tend to lose it. So then after a few generations, you lose your language. You know, what does that mean for your cultural identity? And I think that's a really important question. Like on the weekend, as part of my research for this po big podcast series that I'm co-producing with my collaborator, Masako Fukui, who's Japanese background, um, I was talking to a young Vietnamese guy who's, I'm not sure how old he is, maybe in his early to mid twenties. And I've noticed a lot that in his um, bio, he often mentions he's trying to relearn his mother tongue. So then I called him to ask him, well, what does that mean? And then we were talking about what does it mean to be Vietnamese? And, you know, there's the food, there's like the cultural stuff. Like, I mean, obviously both up, if you have both parents from Vietnam, that kind of automatically makes you Vietnamese, but there has to be more than that, I think. Um, and because, I mean, for me, I'm kind of a big believer in sharing culture as well. I think it is totally possible to like not be ethnically Vietnamese, but you know, um, I mean, for example, I know lots of people who are ethnically Chinese whose parents came from Vietnam and yet their, their um, identity also crosses into Vietnamese territory as well because they grew up eating a lot of Vietnamese food, knowing Vietnamese words. Um, so I guess what I come back to then that makes us really particular, like for me, what it means to be Vietnamese is something to do with the language um, that that is kind of, that is part of the bedrock of our kind of culture. And I also think a lot about our history. I think our history is what kind of defines us. I don't think it should trap us, but it actually explains who we are, where we've come from, and maybe where we're heading as well. You know, recently I've been talking with people and I've been thinking about the fifth generation of Australians or Americans or British uh, Vietnamese. And I'm wondering how important is it to really keep passing down because i know you're in, in involved in bilingual parenting and 
I mean, I'm giving up because it's so difficult and I can only see once I get down to the, you know, my get my grandkids, it's like, how important is that anymore? Or if it is important, why don't we just move back to Vietnam, right? No, I mean, I think, and I don't want to make it sound like you have to pass on language, but I do think language is valuable. I think we shouldn't underestimate just how powerful it is to have language. I mean, we know this as, you know, you and I, we do have the language skills and I see how, how hard it is to pass it on too, because, you know, I was born and raised in Australia. My Vietnamese is fluent enough. It's not like that fluent that I'm like, could, could teach someone. And I, and I can't really write very well at all. I can actually barely write. I can really read a bit more. Um, but I think this is where the effort is for me. Like now that I have kids and it sort of really brought home this question, like what do I want to pass on to my kids? Um, I, I see the struggles that a lot of people have who are mixed race um, in, in Australia, in the US. And so my, that's my kids' experience of life too. And I think it's a totally legitimate identity, of course. I think it's very enriching for them. But the language thing, I, I would like to give it my best shot because even though I totally agree, it's extremely hard. We're in such English dominant societies, but I think, but the thing is, I don't think it needs to be a perfect like fluency that you have, like that our children have, but having something I think would be valuable. And I think this is a struggle of indigenous peoples too, like in, you know, in the US or like Canada, Australia. I mean, having, achieving fluency now is very difficult in a lot of languages, but knowing some of it really, it connects you to like your ancestors because our language is really old. Um, and even if you didn't know much about the history of Vietnam or other aspects of it, I think that that kind of will just through like, you know, being able to say those words, you know, then that is one way to really kind of really powerfully connect with our history. I mean, of, of course, food and those things are important too. But I mean, maybe in a way, I don't think about that too much because like one, we live like in the Vietnamese area. So there's always like right. food available to go out. And my mom still cooks for us. So she's doing all the hard work for me with the cooking. I don't really bother with that. So, I mean, I think one day I might have to learn how to like, make like proper tit car or something. But right now I don't really have to do that. Um, so my focus is really on kind of language um, in terms of my Vietnamese mothering anyway. My mom lives with us. So I, I don't know if your mom lives with you, but the food is definitely something that she, she does and uh, she does it well. And yeah, I mean, um, the passing of my mom one day uh, terrifies me because she still uh, proofreads my Vietnamese when I write it for um, to send out. Um, and I, you know, I don't claim to write it, but I just functionally have to write it to send out questions for right? So if they're older and they don't speak English, so I have to write something in Vietnamese and she texts, she, she checks it all. And in that process of checking it, um, I realize what you're saying is the it's an old language and there's these angles and these ways of looking at things that um, are steeped in history, why we do things, why we say things, why we say things a certain way. And you're right, that is really what identifies us as a culturally Vietnamese. Yeah, but you know, it's funny. Um, I mean, I mean, I talk all day just about the language stuff, because I've thought a lot about it. And I started linguistics as one of my um, subjects in my undergrad. But I mean, growing up, my dad used to kind of keep saying this line about language. He was always kind of giving this propaganda about how, um, <laughs> you know, we're Vietnamese and, you know, other people, when they get colonized, you know, by like, you know, for a thousand years, like we were by the Chinese, they lose their language. And so he was always, that's what, that's what he thought about 
you know, our language. But the funny thing I'll, I'll say is that when I learned Chinese, um, I don't know, maybe like five or six years ago now, and, and I, I resisted for ages. I felt a bit weird about learning Chinese. Like for me, the relationship with Vietnam and China, it's like, a, it's a historical thing. And obviously now it's a contemporary thing as well in Vietnam, but um, it was uncomfortable. But then when I, when I learned Chinese, me and um, the Vietnamese, the other Vietnamese girl in the class, our pronunciation was the best. Like we both found it the easiest because actually, there are a lot of Chinese words in Vietnamese language. So what my dad was saying wasn't quite right, I think. And I think, you know, he kind of was being a, a purist about it. But if you look at um, the language, the, the history of Chinese colonization is in our language too. A lot of the words we use, like um, that, although now, I don't know in Vietnam if they still use it, I think that might be the kind of like the Viet Gil version of these kinds of words. But, you know, when I say like Jin Fu or something, that's the same word as from Chinese or, you know, Bao, like, like these are the things that we kind of have used every day here. And I didn't really know that that was Chinese um, for the longest time until I, until I started learning Chinese a little bit. Um, and so I think that's why I'm so fascinated by language because even French, so we have a lot of French words that we've kind of borrowed into our language as well because that's part of our history. Um, yeah, no, so I, I mean, in a way kind of, it does give me a lot of pride that we have like an old language that has survived and it's taken on all these influences. And that's why like my kids, I named them Vietnamese names. I didn't give them English names. Right. But my dad didn't get it. My dad's like, you're in Australia. Why don't you give them English names? Like, I mean, he gave me an English name when I was born. So that was my name from birth, Ishila Ngoc Pham. But I still had a Vietnamese name in the middle, which no one used anyway. Um, but with my kids, because they're like mixed race, they look pretty white, actually. And I, I mean, not that I knew that, you know, before I gave birth to them. But I think it's really powerful for my daughter, who's four, almost five. She talks a lot now. And she really understands herself as a Vietnamese person that we talk about it all the time. And even tonight, you know, they're going to go play at, um, my daughter's going to go play at this kind of Vietnamese Australian football academy. And so she knows that she kind of belongs there as like, um, you know, as being someone who is Vietnamese. And she has this idea that she speaks the language as well, which is probably not quite true. Like she understands some, but she often talks about knowing language as well. So I just feel like I've just got to keep it up until we can go to Vietnam, at least for a visit. So that to help her improve her fluency. But ultimately, I feel like this is how I can raise my kids biculturally and really make them feel not like inadequate in being Vietnamese just because they can't speak fluently or whatever, but feel like this is a huge part of their history and their heritage. I, f I feel like Vietnamese and Chinese are, I mean, it could be way off, but I feel like it's as close as Italian and Spanish. Uh, it's quite close. I mean, not, not like not as close as that, but I mean, up until like we kind of got Roman characters too, we used the Chinese language system for writing so that, you know, we look at old kind of Vietnamese, um, you know, um, images from like art and stuff or like whatever. There's there's lots of kind of characters now, but a lot of us wouldn't recognize it. Most of us have become, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. A lot of us have lost a link with the past once we change our writing system as well. Um, yeah, but no, the Chinese, we are very influenced by Chinese culture. Um, and so I think that's why it's quite an uncomfortable relationship as well, because of that, you know, thousand year history. Um, and, but even now that's why, like, you know, things like when you think about Asian identity, the reason why that we can relate to a lot of it is because we're part of like that kind of East Asian culture when, you know, where there's a lot of crossover with the, you know, Japanese, Korean, um, and Chinese, cause that's, it all comes from China as well. Yeah, It's a lot of sharing. Um, yeah, I married a Taiwanese woman and she and I talk about this all the time, you know, yeah, uh, airport, airports, parks. I mean, it's all the same word. Yeah, exactly. Although, I mean, I guess, you know, once like, you know, in Vietnam after 1975, they did change kind of the language as well. 
so when you talk about like um feature and people like huh <laughs> because i think now it's called sung bai you know so things like that have been interesting for me like ever since i started going to vietnam um, and i only started going um in 2010 before that um i never got to go my parents never went back they left in 1980 and that was a huge question in my life like i i really struggled with that growing up in my especially into my 20s i really wanted to go actually but i got stopped actually by my dad he said if i went he disowned me um and so you know i i guess i had to choose between you know vietnam or my family and then so i left it but then eventually I ended up moving to Thailand when I was 28 and I lived there and I thought, you know what, I'm so close to Vietnam, I've just got to go. And I think by then the relationship probably was a little bit stronger between us that it didn't, and I was living far away anyway, that it didn't matter so much. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of regret not going sooner though. I think my life would have turned out very differently if I'd gone when I was 23 or 24, to be honest. Like I would have loved to have spent a year there just really kind of connecting with the culture. My language would be a lot better too. Like I think my language isn't as strong as it could be because it's been difficult to spend time in the homeland. I regret not moving back. My brother did during those years. He moved back at 22, 23. And I was the one who was going to move back. And he ended up moving back and um, he's been there for 18 years and living a great life. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's something I think about a lot. I mean, I'm kind of interested in this idea and I, and I, and I intend to explore through my writing a bit more about these kind of parallel universes that we all now kind of live. And I, and I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with this thought, like you know, in the refugee camp, like they're applying to go to different places. And so, for example, like my dad on the boat that um, one of his good friends that he knew from Vietnam, he ended up, him and his family ended up going to Austria. So I visited them in Austria um, in 2014. So it was really funny to visit this, you know, guy who's a bit older than my dad, but it's basically same cohort. And you know, that they, they ended up in a small town in Austria in Salzburg, and just seeing their life and how, like, if my dad had been accepted. Like we could have lived a totally different life. We could totally. have grown up in Austria, yeah. which is totally around. Oh, and, and, I, and I'm a bit obsessed with it. I thought that, you know, the US was where my family wanted to go, but then they ended up um, changing the dates on their application or something, birth dates. Then they got rejected the, by the discrepancy. I mean, this is how the story goes. I don't wow. know exactly if this is true. So we could have ended up in the US. So when I go to the US, I always feel like how weird would it have been if I'd grown up there? And so instead I grew up in Australia, which is a totally different setting again. And so, and I think, that you know with, with all of us we ended up kind of adopting a lot of the traits of like where we kind of moved to right um and sure. australians are very different to americans as a group but as we're creating more dialogue between the vietnamese communities diasporas across the world we're beginning to see the little different nuances and it's just so fascinating how we have changed our thinking but really a lot of it still is the same as our parents and I mean it's a lot of things shift but we still retain uh some of the the basics of our culture oh no totally I mean I think that's why for me personally too like in a lot of ways like if I spend too much time worrying about what it meant to be Australian I think I'd reach mm -hmm. a dead end <laughs> uh, and I have probably very quickly but then what's kind of kind of liberated me the last like little while like it's really kind of thinking more about what does it mean for us to be like Vietnamese across the world and like really getting to know so you know I know people now all over the world who are like Vietnamese like in Germany and in the UK um, you know in France in the US and Canada and just trying to like understand some of the commonalities of our experience and for me it feels like in that way I kind of like think more about like you know we're a young diaspora not so like the Jews who've been diaspora for like thousands of years thousands. or even other cultures that are pretty old in terms of 
being spread across the place. Um, but we're like a young diaspora. We haven't been kind of scattered for so long, like really since the 20th century. So there's still a lot of things that I think are working against us too. So the language thing is what I come back to because I think that we're gonna we're losing the language much more quickly than some of these other groups did. I think because we kind of became scattered like um, later on in the kind of, you know, in the history of the world. This is a great topic actually. Um, what other big diasporas in the world uh, have kept their cultures intact other than the Jews? Um, not, I mean, I guess not, not as powerful as them, I think. They have like, they got a down pat like very early on. And because the reason why they, that the difference with them compared to us is they're an ethno-religion too. So they've got all these, they've got all these rituals and they've got all these kinds of traditions that are really like embedded like over hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but I mean, like for example, the Armenians interest me as well. They, they also have quite, quite a brutal history of genocide in that too. Um, but I know like, I mean, America, Armenians in America, they're quite a strong kind of cultural group as well. Um, I don't know how they're faring with language in that though, but they definitely do have um, more common religion as well. I think one of the things about um, the Vietnamese, which is a bit of a challenge, is that we don't have the same religion. Like we are, you know, mostly predominantly like, you know, Buddhist, but then there's quite a lot of us that we're, we're Catholic. Like I have a Catholic background, but also Buddhist. And I know you come from a Catholic background. So I think that that just means that it kind of just splits us slightly. Like even so then even when we've settled in another country, it's not like we're all going to the same places. So then the, the Vietnamese Catholics are hanging out in these churches. Then the Buddhists are going to those temples. And then the Gaudai, they're like a smaller group. And they've got mm -hmm. a couple of temples here in Sydney as well. Um, and so I think those things just make it like, I mean, I, I think that's what's interesting about Vietnam though. I really think we're like such an interesting kind of mixed heritage kind of group, right? Like even our food, I mean, the food obviously is another thing where you look at our food influences and it's just like, we, we kind of pretty much cover everything from, you know, bun mi, which everyone loves. And of course, you know, why wouldn't you? Like, it's like, you know, really delicious sandwiches basically to like, you know, things which are much more kind of Chinese influenced as well. So I think that's just, I, maybe to answer the question again, another way, I think Vietnamese, being Vietnamese is something about being able to take in so many different influences instead of them making them our own. Yeah. You know, going back to the ethno religion, um, if you think about being a Catholic, a Vietnamese Catholic, I can go to a Sunday service in English or German or whatever language country that I'm in, and I don't need to speak um, Hebrew. Uh, and I think when we're handing down, when they're handing down, the Jews are handing down thousands of years of service, uh, religious services, it, it's kicked into their wherever they go. It's like bundled in and it's a one-stop shop for here you go. Here's, uh, we're going to offer, uh, we're going to offer our religion. You're offered the same tongue. Uh, it doesn't deviate the, the Torah or whatever Bible, uh, whatever part of the Bible they're reading. It's in their Judaic like, uh, text and it doesn't deviate into another religion, uh, into another language. And we, are contending with so many different languages wherever we go as a Catholic. And and I'm sure Buddhism probably is a little bit more looser than that too. I think so. I mean, although the thing about being Catholic, I, and I thought about this a little bit too, like I think it has made, in some ways it would have made my life easier. I don't know how, how you feel about this, but but because I started out going, going to Catholic schools like growing up. So, you know, from basically from kindergarten to U4, I went to Catholic schools. I mean, you know, people often are pretty down on Catholic education because it's got a bad rep for lots of reasons, totally valid. But personally, I had a very good experience of Catholic schools. It was very, they were very multicultural. Like, 
you know, so it's something that it meant that in a way, like I got to grow up in a, for those years that I went to a Catholic school, I got to grow up in a version of Australia that was really kind of multicultural and shared values, I guess. Like, so, you know, I was friends with like Filipino kids and Egyptian kids, you know, there were like a couple of white kids probably, um, I can't remember now, but then if I look at that school photo, it was really mixed. And there were other Asians as well, Vietnamese, Chinese or Catholics. So it just meant that, you know, it, I didn't kind of understand that um, it was going to be a challenge growing up as Vietnamese in a country like Australia. Probably it hit me more once I then left those two Catholic schools and then I went to like a regular or public school in another area. And then in the whole year, there was just me and three other Chinese kids. And then there were no other Asians in that year. And so that was, I think that was those two and a half years I was at that school really kind of um, made me feel very like, I guess the real, a real reality check too. Um, but, you know, just to kind of finish that story, but then I ended up changing to a high school. It was full of Asians again. So mm. then I kind of, you know, bounced back a little bit, but those two and a half years probably did scar me pretty deeply. I think of just being the only Asian kid, you know, um, or one of only a couple of Asian kids for a couple of years there. That was hard. And scarring is a real word for that. I really do. But I talked about this over the weekend with the, quite a few people. And I think we get scarred and we don't realize that the keloids, the the bumps that are existing internally are there, but we, we don't acknowledge it sometimes. And we we base some of our biases directly on that scarring that happens when you're the only Vietnamese in, in your ecosystem. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think I really empathize with those kinds of stories that you hear where people grow up very isolated, very far away. I mean, like I said, it, for me, it was only like really a couple of years there where I had that because then I went to a high school where there were heaps of Viet kids, like, um, you know, and other Asians as well. And so that was that really kind of then protected me probably from like 13 to 17. I was like just one of heaps of Asians. It was okay to be a nerd. It was, you know, like it was okay to have strict parents. Heaps of them did have strict parents as well. So I didn't feel different because of my Vietnamese right. anyway. I might've felt different for other reasons because of myself. But at least that factor was taken out. Whereas I think those couple of other years, at least they kind of gave me, now I look back, I mean, it's, even though those are hard times as well, at least it gave me a kind of understanding for other people's experiences. Because, I mean, they're the things you read about and you meet people who grew up really hating being like Asian or Vietnamese or something. And that's really a hard place to be to kind of grow up with that feeling because, you know, it's it's so uncomfortable when you're a child and the whole world around you is telling you you're different and that's not good. Like we don't yeah. accept that. And, you know, now that we're on this topic of being different, um, I, I want to talk about this thing, this idea that you and I have talked about of the range of things that you've learned in your life and have really worked in, in a professional um, setting with so many different uh, disciplines. I came um, to you and I reached out to you because of the, the article in The Guardian that you wrote. And... Um, you know, typically when I'm reading an article like that, I, you know, I, I'm very impressed by the subject or the way it's written. And, and the subject is really what piques my curiosity. But as I said to you before, what really gets me to the next level is like, who is the writer? Why did they choose to write? You, you know, and then when you reach out and you start to have a conversation with the writer, you realize the breadth of knowledge that that's involved in painting the picture that you just wrote. And so I wanted to give you kudos for, you know, such a, you, I had several people email it to me um, saying that you should reach out and figure out who, if you can interview the, the woman. Uh, but, you know, I'm interested in that, but 
what you know like i said my job is more to find out who is writing and why and 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 what is the motivation of um going out to spend i, I would figure it's weeks or months to to put an article like that together right yeah thanks i yeah i really appreciated you reaching out to me on the basis of that i mean other people reach out to me to for me to kind of put them in touch with Fung Tam, which is totally fair as well um because that's a fascinating story and kind of totally worth listening to that album if people want to look it up so that's um it's out on sublime frequencies and it's this incredible record that they've just basically unearthed um, from like old shops in Saigon and wherever else, just record collectors to just kind of put together this woman's like body of work from the sixties in Vietnam. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I think I have a lot of different interests, um, you know, and it, I think it comes from probably the difficulties of growing up, you know, the way that I did in a very insular kind of Vietnamese family in a lot of ways. Like I, I guess I, I wanted to escape it, even though like, you know, in other ways, I couldn't escape it. I was just sort of in this kind of, you know, difficult family situation with my my parents. My dad was very strict. I have a very tough dad. Um, but I guess I escaped by reading a lot. That was probably what I could access. You know, I watched a lot of TV. I watched a lot of TV growing up. Like people worry about their kids watching an hour of screen time. Man, I watch like at least 40 hours minimum a week of TV. Me too. What what? So what do you think? Of, maybe we're going to veer off, but yeah. <laughs> yeah be, and I find that it, it's actually, it seems okay for my daughter she is able to really talk to me about a lot of different things at four and a half. Yeah, my, my kid's the same age. No, I mean, I think screen time for me, I mean, I'm not as bothered by it because I, of my own background. Although maybe it's different with, you know, watching YouTube versus watching just like TV randomly. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, a lot of the things I watched on TV growing up probably hasn't stuck. I don't think I remembered most of it, but it did really connect me with the outside world, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, because, you know, I grew up in this like Vietnamese household you know, in the suburbs of Sydney, um, Vietnam was like distant and fraught. And, you know, like it was, it was, there's was a lot of trauma, basically. Like, I think that's one way to describe the kind of family situation that I had. Um, and then our extended relatives were like back in Vietnam, my parents were trying to sponsor them over. There was just a lot of that, right? So a lot of Vietnamese families have this. Um, not, not every kid though escapes into like pop culture and media, probably like maybe only certain of us then get really sucked into this whole other world of like, and it wasn't even that I wanted to be like that. I just loved the entertainment of it. I think I really just loved TV. Like I was obsessed with it. Watch a lot of movies like, and you know, and video shops back then were pretty cheap really. Like you could hire a weekly for like a dollar or something. And so then, you know, I'd watch heaps of movies growing up, heaps of TV, read heaps because I'd go and libraries. So I, we didn't have yeah. many books at home, but you know, I even when I'm from a young age, probably from the age of like nine or 10, I was at that school library like, every day especially during those lonely years actually I think that's when it really started when I was like one of the only Asian kids I just hung out the library every day I went and borrowed books read books a lot of books about America so I was very obsessed with America growing up um, and just like I think that really shaped my world like magazines as well just really knowing that there was a world out there that I wanted to discover and I wanted to I couldn't wait to one day to be free enough to be able to do that so that basically happened for me pretty much when I could finish high school I, and when the internet hit too, when the internet hit, when I was like 15, 16, it opened up a whole entire world. I loved chatting to people in other countries. It just was like this whole other kind of world that opened up to me. So I think that um, this is a long way of answering your question, but this is the basis of my curiosity about the world, I think. And so it does kind of relate to growing up Vietnamese in a very particular way um, and just knowing Vietnamese people. And I wanted to know more than that. I knew, I knew there was more to the world. Um, because the media showed me that, you know, um, even though later on I would discover like, you know, the media only shows you one version of reality. There's lots of different realities, right? Um, but the, um, yeah, but then 
I guess over time, like, I wouldn't say like I ever like lost my kind of um, connection to Vietnamese culture, but definitely like in terms of my own choices, I was only very interested in Western culture. But over time, you know, I wanted to sort of kind of reconcile that a little bit. So, you know, I, I started to seek out like ideas which were sort of linking the two. So that's where, that's where this rock music thing comes from. So I just remember when I was living in Thailand, so I guess I was 29 at the time or 28. I just had this thought randomly, like I was like in the shower or something. I was like, do Vietnamese people listen to rock music? That was the question I had. Mm. And then that's where this kind of idea, that was a seed, literally, I don't know where it came from, literally nowhere it seems. Um, and then I basically started to explore that idea and I discovered there was this whole history about rock music in Vietnam. And that was so interesting. And maybe that was probably one way I could feel like I could access a history which I felt so hard to access because my dad would always say, you know, you'll never notice like growing up in Vietnam the times that we did. And I'm like, of course, how could I? You know, I grew up in another country, another time, another place away from a war. But um, I guess that rock music thing um, kind of was one way for me to try and recover and connect for myself, like on my own terms, not because I was told to do it, not because my, uh, you know, out of guilt or anything, or like I genuinely felt I loved music when I, and I wanted to be a music journalist when I was younger as well. And so this was like a project that I just basically, you know, started slowly to explore. And then I found myself in a position when I was working at the ABC in a totally unrelated role, like, but I happened to sit next to the producer of the radio kind of documentary program on music called Into the Music. And I just said to her, I said, hey, Kathy, like I have this idea and it seems kind of like crazy because I have no experience, but what do you think? Like um, there's this concert happening of all these old kind of Vietnamese like performers. Could we like, you know, make this into a, a documentary of some kind? And to her credit, she was like, yeah, sure, go for it. Even though in the end, I was totally left on my own to just do it. But at least I got the green light from, an, from the executive producer to just go and explore this. So pretty much over the course of a year, I went from zero kind of experience with making a radio feature to at the end of it, coming up with a 50 something minute kind of feature, wow. which explores this question of rock music in Vietnam. And so I document like how, how it starts. I talk to like experts, I talk to old like Vietnamese rock stars. Um, yeah, and then that's that's where the film thumb story 10 years later, I was in the right position wow. where the, the producer reached out to me, um, Mark Gerges, and he had produced an awesome compilation called Saigon Rock and Soul. Mark, I think has a totally awesome, interesting story too, because he, Grew up in California, but um, half Syrian, half like white American, but just super interested in other cultures as well. Um, I'm not sure why he um, became so interested in Vietnamese music, but at some point he started collecting like cassettes and stuff. Um, and he produced this awesome compilation. So it's like all these different worlds of just people who are interested and curious about the world. And then, then I guess that's how he reached out to me a few months ago. And he said to me, Sheila, I got to tell you about this project I've been working on. I think it'll really interest you. Um, and so then I basically heard about the Fung Thum story and I'm like, well, this is uncanny that Hannah Ha living in um, St. Louis in, you know, in, in the US went on this journey to look for her mother's music that she hadn't really known about because I had done the same thing myself in, you know, in 2012 where I went and found my mother's story about being a singer in Vietnam as well. Oh, wow. So that's the story. <laughs> yeah, I, anyway. I, mean, I knew there was a story behind the story too. Um, yeah, but there's so been, rich. Yeah, there's so much to it, and the Vietnamese music. And I think the thing I love about these stories about this Vietnamese music stuff is that women are the stars. And so, actually, funnily enough, too, about six, well, even more than six months ago, but six months ago, I actually reached out to like a theater um, person here I know who, um, you know, is uh, sitting on a big budget too, or a small budget anyway. And I said to her, I have an idea for 
adapting a radio feature I made like almost 10 years ago about Vietnamese rock music. Like I'd like to make it into a stage production. I think it's got legs. I think it'd be like, kind of like the answer to Miss Saigon that maybe we've been needing told from this perspective of like Vietnamese people, Vietnamese women in particular. And she's like, yep. And then she gave me a little bit of funding, just not, not much to start off with, but just enough to kind of kick off the whole thing. And so this Phuong Dam story then kind of appears some a few months later. And I was like, I feel like the universe is talking to me, like that there is that there is a really good story here, which is about kind of something about, I don't know, recentering kind of Vietnamese women's voices in our history and told through music and pop culture. And just like they have so much kind of agency in these kinds of scenarios too. Like I think that's what's wrong with Miss Saigon as a musical, which I saw a long time ago. And to be honest, at the time, I don't think I thought it was problematic at all when I was like 15 or 16. But if you think about it now, I mean, it's quite a very problematic musical. Um, and the way Vietnam and Vietnamese women are rendered completely passive, you know, and then the Americans have all the agency. Like it's a very problematic kind of storyline. Um, but um, yeah, but I think there's another way to tell this history. Um, I wouldn't necessarily need to say that, you know, you need to cancel Miss Saigon, but it's a very problematic musical <laughs> now. But, you know, it's it's part of the, what's caked into our psyche too, as these strange people in their land, right? It, this is their story and they're going to tell it the way they want and whatever it doesn't matter what we feel or how we see it you know how our women how our men are being scarred and and having to not feel you, you said you watch at 14 15 i did too and at the time you didn't think anything because it was just so this is how colonialism it, this is part of it this is the systemic way it's being normalized in your mind at that age that you don't start to think about the implications of uh, positioning and relativity and agency and all of that. And I think you having this idea for this musical is amazing. I would, it, I'm sitting here so excited to, to, you know, in anticipation of it being developed. Yeah, look, it's good. I mean, and, and I guess I know a good idea. And now that I've done enough of this kind of work, like I know a good idea when I'm when I've got one. You see um, legs when you know legs when you see them. Yeah, it's a powerful story. And even that, you know, even that documentary I made in 2012. Even occasionally, I'll meet someone who's like, "Oh, that was your story." Like they they heard it because it was on national radio here, which only white people listen to. I think no no Asians have to listen to that. Um, Ironically, it's like NPR, it's like NPR basically. <laughs> um, but no, but but even like I was going for a job interview, like was it last year? And then the guy's like, oh, I heard your program on, you know, Radio National. And I was like, you know, that people remembered that story about my because it because it, it was a whole personal angle too, about how as part of that, I kind of discovered my mother had been part of a, a singing troupe that was entertaining the Vietnamese soldiers too. But my mom's like this incredibly modest person. She never talks about herself. Like she doesn't talk about the past. She's one of those people. She's just someone who kind of looks forward and he talks about day-to-day -day stuff. Um, Phuong Tham was like that too, actually. So that's why I, when I talked to her in San, you know, in San Jose, like, it was like almost like talking to like my mom in a way, like because she had never told her kids for like 50 years that she used to sing as well. And so that's why the kids, you know, they all became doctors in America, you know, like, like a, and the husband had been a doctor as well. And just like, they never knew anything about their mom's past. Like, and so the, I think the lives of women can be very hidden. Um, and yet they're so like, can be so powerful too. I mean, not everyone's mom's a singer, obviously. Just a bit uncanny that <laughs> in but, this case. But but you know, um, there's some stigma attached to being a singer, and especially when you marry a doctor, right? It's like there's a saying, "Sunka volai." It's like there's no place for you. Basically, there's as a. It's very discouraging, and I think it's something that 
you know, I think that the doctor met the the the, the singer, and you know, they kind of want to bury it. I don't know. I'm just I'm yeah thinking but, about well, that. What happened in Fung Dam's case, actually, because like the, the doctor's family, like her in-laws, rejected the relationship. They didn't accept it. They didn't think she was good enough for him, you know, that she's an upstart, basically. Um, but I don't know, man, like people, the, the attitude that Vietnam, you know, patriarchal society has towards its women is not good, considering how strong our women are, really. Um, and I, you know, and it, it, I was even kind of triggered a bit recently. So I run like a big Facebook group called Vietnamese Bilingual Parenting. And um, I shared a, a funny video, I thought, from BuzzFeed, where um, there's a Vietnamese kind of um, American food blogger from San Francisco with blue hair. I don't know if you know her. And then she um, she's basically trying three Vietnamese dishes cooked by three Vietnamese guys. And she's yeah, watched that. Oh, you watched that? I don't, I don't know. I thought it was funny. So I shared it to the group. Even though it's not normally the kind of thing I'd share. And then like, I got a comment from a, a Vietnamese dad in the group saying, you know, basically she's a really bad example of a Vietnamese, you know, second gen. And essentially like the reason why we want our kids to be bilingual is to avoid them turning out like her. And I just like, oh, I got so angry, but I wrote back quite a moderate response, which a lot of people liked. Cause I think the group is very progressive. I think most of us are, are Viet girls, second gens, like growing up overseas, we probably don't have such kind of a, you know, a patriarchal view of like how we're supposed to behave, especially women. I mean, go for it, have blue hair. Yeah. You know, if my daughter wants to have blue hair, go for it. I mean, yeah. why would I Red judge her? Yeah. yeah, but I mean, that's a, exactly. But it's the kind of thing I heard growing up too. Like my dad, like saying, you know, if I dyed my hair, that made me like, does that mean I was ashamed of my culture? You know, that kind of stuff. So that's like a very old fashioned view, which is still a kind of thread in Vietnamese culture as well. And I think that's why women get judged for being different or, you know, for being singers or whatever. Like there's that kind of, you know, you see different versions of that over time too. And I definitely remember like the you know, as I was growing up, I'd hear these judgments. And at some point, I probably wouldn't necessarily say it out loud often, but I would kind of reject them for myself. Like, you know, single moms always got a pretty bad rap, you know, in my, in my house. Oh, you my dad, especially my dad. Okay, I'm always talking about my dad because my mom doesn't say it that much. It's usually my dad. And my dad would go like, you know, that when they're getting divorced and make some kind of, you know, derogatory comment about the woman. And I'm like, and I remember at some point, it must've been like 16, 17. I was like, good, I'm glad. Can you stop talking about it? Mm. I'm glad you got out of that horrible marriage, you know? So I, I think, you know, yeah. You know, I, I still have that way of looking at things, you know, I'm obviously, I'm much more progressive, but because the the patriarch has handed it down and, and I'm received, I've received it. You know, I was thinking about what you just said about blonde hair and, uh, wanting uh, or being ashamed, I'm like, I can deal with blue hair, but blonde hair is a, you know. So yes, you're you're right. It, it's still ingrained in the programming, and it takes it takes a long time to to really extinguish it, especially if it goes unchecked in in men, Vietnamese men. Um, uh, I, d I definitely think it's a Vietnamese men thing. I have encountered a, a yes, and even like shorthand. I was talking to like another friend of mine who's Vietnamese too, and um, and we often talk about Viet men as like a shorthand because he gets it too, and. And, and but we also talk about the differences of treatment, but even in my own family, like me being the daughter, I get different treatments to my brothers. And so, you know, that's something I think about a lot now because I have my own kids, you know, I've got a boy and a girl, but um, I think I basically treat them, you know, fairly at this stage anyway, it might change. And I'm sure I will have biases that sort of creep up as well, like over time, because we're so conditioned to be like this and our cultures are so kind of founded on this kind of gender inequality, basically in Vietnam. 
even though I feel like women kind of hold it together and pretty much I would say this is cross-cultural women are often the ones that keep it together for everyone I mean and actually I read a great book recently um uh, got it here on the shelf I don't know if, um, I, I think you had her on your, on your show, actually, um, The Mountain Sing. And I think that is such a, like, a powerful book on a million different levels, actually. Like I, I reached out to her um, because it's, it's a real kind of, uh, I guess it's a real ode to like how powerful and how strong Vietnamese women are. Like the, the survival that, you know, that story kind of tracks is like mind blowing. Um, but it's like what so many people did to survive. And it's often the women who had to kind of keep it going for everyone. I'm glad you brought the book up. Uh, I spent the whole weekend with uh, Um I organized a, a lunch for her on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we went to her um, people in Orange County organized. It was a big thing. I think it was close to 200 people who it was a big buzz. And uh, a lot of people came out for her event. And she is very strong, a very strong woman. Um, and, and I don't mean just in the writing, I mean, in the way uh, she's organized uh, this campaign of love. It's, you know, takes a, a strong and she's tiny, she's a tiny woman. And, um, you know, uh, the way she, the way she uh, moves in the world, um, if you kind of watch what she does on social media and the things that she um, reaches out to do to 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 help everyone around her uh, takes a lot of strength. And um, without without saying much, she uh, really helps lift the community around her, uh, wh whether it's the literary community or uh, the film community or you know the, the the food community. It's it's everywhere. She's permeated. Uh, into uh, Vietnamese uh, culture throughout the world now. And she's very strategic on how she does things. And if you just kind of pay attention with the language that she uses or the lack of language that she use, uses, you know, she chooses yeah. not to say certain things in Vietnamese and certain things she says in English. And it's a quite brilliant uh, woman. I think so too. I mean, I can, and you can tell from the book. So, I mean, I mean, I've only had online interactions with her, so I haven't, I haven't had the chance to speak to her yet. But when you read the book, I mean, I think this is the book we need to move past our differences. Like, I mean, that's a really heartbreaking thing about being part of like, you know, the community here. And I see it in the US as well. And obviously elsewhere, just those deep kind of hurts and ideological divides that really keep us from progressing. I mean, for example, like, um, yeah, like, I mean, so this book, I think the reason why it's really powerful is because I don't know if you had the same experience, but when I grew up, I really had no concept of what the North went through in the war. You know what I mean? They were just basically completely opaque. There's, even though over time, over the, my, my social media, I start to see trickles of things, right? But this book, I think, articulates that, like, in the most kind of, like, empathic, like, you know, you know, I don't know, I have none of the words to describe how she did it, but because she's like a high level bilingual too, and she, and because she was raised, you know, in the North and the South, and she just understood, understands all the nuances, that also the identity politics of the time too, like this is a lot about identity politics, which I found really interesting. It makes me think about what we're going through in a different way in, you know, in our countries now, but in Vietnam, that was like the original ID politics, man, like it was hardcore, the way people would turn on their kind of family through like ideologies, right? Um, but I think she's a real voice for kind of peace and reconciliation and she really gets it. She gets that this is what's at stake. It's big stuff. Like, like for us to like move forward as a community, 
we have to move past this. And that's why to go back to the language thing, that's one thing that keeps us back with language too. At least I know in Australia, like in Sydney, like a lot of the language schools are really still shaped by people who are very traumatized, who are kind of, um, you know, still thinking that their version of Vietnamese is the legitimate one, you know, that the new words that have come in, that those like, you know, those trigger them. They literally are trigger words. It's like when I have accidentally said to my dad, you know, I would say, nook why instead of why work or something mm -hmm. I got triggered by that once I remember like because I you know had gone to Vietnam and that's what they say nook why now and he didn't like that you know he's that's a communist word so those kinds of things it's that is painful like I and I, it's hard like when I feel like you know I'm like damn it you know I'm trying to connect with your culture I didn't come from Vietnam you know I came from here in the end you know I was born here but obviously it's really important for me to try and understand my own history as well my family's history but it, it's very hard if you have a family like mine, and I think some people do, where your parents aren't going to help you on this journey. You have to do it on your own. And so I guess I'm just sort of pig-headed enough that I can kind of do it on my own, basically. And so a lot of my, and, you know, I think a lot of my work is kind of a way of trying to understand my family. Like, that's why I have done all these documentaries and this writing even without their input, basically, I just have to do it. And I reach out to other people. I form my own networks. I reach out to other Vietnamese. That's why I know so many, um, because I can't, it's so hard for us to kind of reconcile on this sort of stuff. I can't talk to my family about it. So that's the reality. Um, and that's why when I read a book like The Mountain Sing, I think, I wish my dad could read the book like this, but he never would. You know, they're too afraid to kind of open themselves up to the possibilities that maybe we are all the same in a sense, you know, we're all Vietnamese, North, South, Central. We have a shared history. It's a very painful and horrible history, really brutal history. I mean, I was so upset reading about the, um, the land reform movements, you know, when the Northerners turned each other, I was like, man, that, that is just like evil. You know what I mean? Um, but of course, but it happens just, every day too. If you think about it, right yeah. all over the world, yeah. it happens everywhere. And then she just talks about this thing that happens that happened in in our past in our country that really has not even nothing to do with with the, the the new wave of vietnamese leaving after 75. i mean if you think about it a lot of us were not part of that land reform um up north but when i read the first i mean maybe 20 pages i was like what the hell am i reading because you were right you never exposed to this opaque history and you know nothing about it my mom left in 1954 from the north and you just, that's it. That was the window, 1954, an iron door just slammed shut and you don't, you know nothing about it. So I feel like there's these jungle canopies that we've always thought of, or I've always thought of Vietnam's North above the canopy line, above the, 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 the leaves of the big trees of the jungle. And, and I never was able to kind of see what was happening underneath the, 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 the canopy, the tree canopy. And, and once I began the, the first 20 pages of Chikwe Mai's uh, book, I was like, holy shit, how did this communist author penetrate the U.S.? But, and then you just read more, and it's not what you think it is at all. And by the time you end, you get to the end of the book, uh, the genius, and I've told Chikwe Mai, the genius of that last 10%, 15%, how, she, how she's uh, brought the... the, the conclusion and how she's um amalgamated how she's uh, blended all of the things that happen and i asked her about that she's i said like 
that was something you mapped out? That was something you planned? Did you configure that ahead? She said, no, it took her four years or, or seven, four, seven years to write the book, but it took her four years to, to get the ending. And she said it happened and this is how it happened. And, you know, she explained it to me, but she said it, it so it makes me think that it's, it's kind of like divine happening um, with the timing, with the, the who uh, aspect of who Chikwe Mai is, um, you know, writing this book in English and not in Vietnamese translated and bringing this message of, of love. This is the book. This is the milestone that we're, this is the, 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 the marker in history, Vietnamese history that we're at, that everybody needs to kind of come together and really look underneath the canopy and, and begin to see the mechanic, the mechanics of what's, what's going on um, in, in our history. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess that's where I've kind of arrived as well. Maybe it came at the right time in my life as yeah. well, right? Like, if you asked me 10 years ago, I think I would have been completely overwhelmed at the thought of this, like, yeah. I just was not ready for it. But then over time, because of my own work and my own explorations into all this stuff, and it's always been kind of a difficult topic for, um, I could never bring it up obviously at home. <laughs> Imagine trying to have a conversation about, the, you know, maybe the, the North went through a hard time as well. Um, but then like, you know- I'm, We were on the wrong side of history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's um, forbidden to, 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 to say that. But, but a couple of years ago, I ended up doing um, a small project. So like I got an opportunity to write um, and do some work for the State Library of, of New South Wales. So it's because each of our states has like a kind of big public institution. And I just happened to discover that there was this huge archive of um, Vietnamese poster art from the 50s. So there's these two Vietnamese Australian, oh, no, sorry, not Vietnamese Australians, two Australians who went to Vietnam and to Hanai, and they were like members of the Communist Party in Australia. So they were going over there to help the North um, with their English skills. So they were artists that were kind of like these intellectual types and they spent two years and they gathered heaps and heaps of materials. They brought it back with them and they just sat, just sitting in archives, even now, like folk art, traditional stuff, like propaganda stuff, like poster art, all kinds of stuff. And so I had to think really, but I was uncomfortable, you know, writing about them and their history because obviously they were sympathetic to the cause in the North. Um, so this was in, I think, 2018 or so now, but I, I, I felt really kind of happy with where I arrived in that piece was that, in the end, I mean, I had to admire these people for going to Vietnam in the 50s when like from Australia, these two white Australians, they don't know anything about Vietnam. They just, it's a distant land for them, right? And in, and in her memoir, the um, woman Mona Brand, she talks about meeting Ho Chi Minh a couple of times as well and wow. how charming he is and everything. Um, but I just thought in the end, what matters is there's this legacy now, like of like these two random Australians, they've got this huge collection of art you know then but you know it was difficult because then I tried to tell my dad about it but then he kind of shut me down and I thought man this is really hard so I guess I can't talk to you about folk art because for him it's like northern kind of equals communist almost um not simple I don't want to be too reductive of his own views but it, that's what it feels like when I try to talk to him about this stuff um, what did he do in Vietnam when he left well so my dad was in you know in the army so he was training in Dalat for four years and then he was in a re-education camp so he's very traumatized by that experience like you know, I think growing up, I heard a lot of horrible stories about what it was like to be in that re-education camp. And the history was brutal. After the communists took power, I think those kind of years, you know, in the high communist years, they were really awful. That's when I guess it triggered the mass exodus, right? People got pretty desperate to and, leave. And you know, what I've learned too is people in the communist party at the time were also disappointed with the re-education camp. They, 
they left the the the, the party or they left they, they broke rank because they didn't agree with their comrades treating um the old uh the old guard a certain way it's it's all human we're all human and there's brutality in humanity yeah and i think we need to acknowledge that too that i mean i think um in the book i talk about the book again i think she kind of touches on that sometimes there, were, there was dissent i mean but this is I, but i guess i really relate to because you're right it's human nature i see it in different ways being played out here now in the things that i'm involved with like this kind of like um yeah, I mean, I guess one way to describe it is a kind of identity politics as well. People breaking ranks, people sort of going like, no, I don't really agree with that or not, um, based on ideologies and that. Um, I mean, I guess when I went to Hanoi for the first time, so that was when I was living in Thailand, so 2011, I remember I was a bit shocked when I went into a taxi and, you know, people, they, they talk to you and everything. And one, the good thing about being in Hanoi, I'll say, from being from like, you know, with a Southern accent is no one can kind of tell I'm a bit gill actually in the North. Like it's only in Saigon, everyone can tell straight away, you're not from here, are you? What country do you come from? You know, whereas in Hanoi, people always assume I'm just from Saigon, basically, because that's kind of, they, they're kind of, um, they, they're not used to the, you know, nuances, I guess, of the accent or whatever. Right. But I remember, I remember talking to this taxi driver, so it was like 10 years ago, and then he was saying, you know, do you think Ho Chi Minh wanted any of this? And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, but um, I guess it was, it interested me because he was so open about it that a lot of people are disappointed with how things have turned. Um, I noticed a lot of people in Hanoi really loved um, going to Saigon much more actually it's so much livelier there was a real kind of like every time I visited there people always go yeah Saigon's great isn't it like yeah because it's more there's, fun there's more it's just so much there's more vive. yeah but the, the, the joie de vivre, exactly um I mean but I, I, I find Hanover interesting that was the last place I visited in Vietnam in 2018 so I took my one-year-old daughter there and my husband had some work there so we we spent a week there and actually on that trip I met an Agent Orange survivor hmm. so I was collecting I did a little interview for a project and, and that was interesting too. Like I went to the outskirts of town and then I, I didn't, I didn't get to see any of the kids or anything, but um, I got to hear about the work that they were doing. And it's really tragic what happened with Agent Orange, like, cause you know, that that's going to be intergenerational now over many generations, the effects are still being felt mm -hmm. of like, you know, the chemical warfare. You, you know, 20 years ago, my viewpoint on being Vietnamese was one thing. 10 years ago was another thing. Five years ago was another thing. Up to a year and a half ago, it was another thing. And maybe six months ago was another thing. Um, every time, uh, every 10, 20 episodes that I do, I begin to understand that there's like more layers to our culture and to the changes within each subdivision happening that you can't even document. It's, it's happening so quick that you can't really put your finger on it. Um, you just have to be, I feel like you just have to be open to all of it. And as I talk to you, there's a, a perspective that is so broad coming from Australia, from a Vietnamese woman in Australia. And, but we share a lot of the, the pain and the anguish, but at the same time, it's really broad. It's not as, it's not as um, controlled and as, as narrow as I thought 10 years ago. You know, and I think that a lot of people, Vietnamese Americans in Orange County or, or in certain places where there's a big population of Vietnamese are still locked into Vietnam, the country is bad. Vietnam, the country is, and I see it on the threads, I see it on the comments uh, where you know, there's so much violation of human rights and you know, yada, yada, yada. Yes, but there's also things that are being improved in, in ways and, and velocity that we we don't even 
we're not even privy to with the naked eye. We we don't know. Um, and as I'm doing more of these interviews with people in the education sector, the business sector, uh, a lot of this stuff is coming to light, but they, they can't change it quick enough because, I mean, change doesn't happen that quick. And I think in another five years, we're going to see Vietnam in a very different, different light. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and I guess, but these things are painful though. Transition is hard. Every generation yeah. feels this, every culture, like it's always hard going up against your elders as well. Um, you know, if, especially if you have different kind of viewpoints on, you know, so, so I guess it, it, I'd like to, I mean, for me personally too, I guess I've also had to be quite careful in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm quite frank with you today, I guess talking, you know, cause I think you understand where I'm coming from with, with this intergenerational stuff. But I realized at the end of the day, even from a young age, I'm like, I realized there's a lot at stake. Like, that's why like, I was always really proud to have a language actually. I understood language was valuable. I don't know where that came from exactly, but I was glad that I had language skills. So I always did my best to maintain it. I mean, I wish it was better, but I can't get better until I spend time in Vietnam really. Um, and so that's still a kind of a thought for the future. Um, but these days though, like, I guess I have a different conversation with people too. Like it always changes, you know, and, and it depends on who I meet. Like, so yeah. interestingly enough, um, the, the thing I wanted to kind of um, bring up today, which I think is a really interesting kind of development in Australia, particularly is a couple of months ago, there was a young Vietnamese woman who is in um, one of the major political parties. And she had been kind of tipped as being a potential kind of candidate for a seat which is full of Vietnamese people too. The population of Vietnamese there, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was large, 15%, maybe more or something. Um, and it's, it is one of the heartlands of, like it's basically the heartland of Vietnamese Australian kind of culture. Um, and so it's called the seat of Fowler. And so this young woman, Dule, like she basically got kind of sidelined by the party kind of um, machinery um, put to one side and then someone's getting parachuted in like, um, and on the face of it, the optics is basically like an older, white woman, very experienced in politics, a good performer is what, you know, how she's described, but she's been kind of parachuted into a seat, which is basically a lot of the population there are from migrant backgrounds, a lot of Vietnamese and other groups as well. And I highlighted this issue we have in Australia is that the Vietnamese have done pretty well as a group in some ways, where, you know, professional classes, we've kind of, um, we had a hard time in the, in the 80s and the 90s with drugs and gangs and violence and all of that, but we kind of made through the very difficult time to now be kind of considered, I guess, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a migrant success, you know, um, all of that kind of, you know, and it, that, I mean, that, that that's, that's probably worth unpacking. But anyway, for the sake <laughs> of um, this discussion, let's just say we're kind of considered a successful group now, right, the Vietnamese, we have famous celebrities like that are Vietnamese and that, but when it comes to politics, we have very little Nothing. representation, a little bit in local politics in some areas, but in Sydney, where we have like basically a couple hundred thousand people with Vietnamese heritage, we don't really have elected officials. I also live in a Vietnamese area and in the local council, as far as I could see, we haven't had a Vietnamese person for like decades in there. So even though, you know, we represent quite powerful, you know, cultural and, and business interests. So it's interesting, like this, this issue has now come to head again about what does it mean to be Vietnamese Australian? We've been here for almost half a century now, pretty much. And yet we're still kind of not, you know, having a seat at the table and so then um, with Dole, um and a few others too who are involved in politics and the law and that, they kind of, there's a new kind of group that wants to start up um, called the Vietnamese Australian Forum, which is meant to sort of, you know, try to create a new kind of way of thinking about these issues and engaging with civil society here. Um, because we have had, we, we do have Vietnamese community associations in each state, but a lot of them, I guess, are pretty much people of our parents' generation involved. The thinking is still very much like on the 30th of April, 
I guess they, it's, you know, it's a sensitive day and it's still kind of marked and cele celebrated and commemorated as a kind of day of loss. And of course it is a day of loss, but there's no kind of thinking about the future, not enough anyway. What does it mean for the second generation? What does it mean for our, for our kids now, the third generation coming in? And so I think there is a shift happening now. I could see it's just interesting the last few months, you know, where maybe we're kind of now beginning to mobilize and think, well, maybe we need to join forces. And me too, like I've pretty much stayed quite independent of a lot of this kind of Vietnamese community politics stuff. I've really kept outside of it instinctually, I guess. But I also felt this year that maybe something needs to shift. We won't see progress otherwise. Um, well, yeah. the, the problem is that I, th I think, I'm, I'm just guessing, uh, here's my guess. When it comes to politics, there's so much, like in second generation, there's a, probably a lot of trauma and shame and we've moved beyond or the last 20 years, we've just moved beyond our community of being Vietnamese. We don't want to be Vietnamese. We Traditionally, I didn't. I, I A lot of my friends didn't. And I think now there's a, a sort of a reckoning in the last two years, three years. And I think hopefully now we're going to start to see more political, uh, political representation with people who have changed their minds as as a result of the dialogue that's happening a lot now um these second generation guys in their 40s and 50s turning the ship around to say wait a minute we need to engage in politics we've done well in business we've done well in our careers it's time to like really take a take a seat at the table and i think in the other professions like entertainment or you, you know it's it's easier to say you know we we had things to express and we want to go out and express it and we want to write about it. We want to act on, you know, be actors or singers or producers and try to work it through that way. But I think with politics, it's been just like, oh my God, that's like a losing, it's a, it's a, it's a very tough fight to, to, I, I think there's maybe a handful of Vietnamese people in the U S to, to, to tackle that uh, representation. It's, it's, but it's growing. And, by the time the third generation, I think, gets here, they won't have that baggage and they just will see it as a, a data point and, you know, they're going to try to make good for their for, for their community in terms of a data point and they won't have that kind of trauma or shame or baggage that the second generation um, has been carried. But that's just my guess. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's a lot to what you're saying. I mean, but there was, a, but I think what I've also realized is it's just that everyone's story is quite, quite different mm -hmm. too. Like, so, I mean, I've become very interested in this other group um, of like Vietnamese um, in Australia that came in a different way. They came as university scholarship kind of people, Colombo scholars. And I think the US has something like that too. And so then when I meet them, their kind of histories are quite different. Very different. They, but, but then a lot of ways they grew up very far from community, I noticed. So it's often just randomly that I'll run across someone whose parent came here in the sixties or something. So they, they became refugees, but they'd have been living here basically. So it's a little bit different. Um, but then, I mean, yeah, but no, but to, um, no, I totally I, I hear what you're saying. Um, but then, for example, this young woman who, um, who is interested in politics, I mean, interestingly, like, you know, she grew up very much kind of enmeshed in the Vietnamese community and grew up in a real sense of, um, I guess, strength, I think she drew from being Vietnamese, which is a bit different to some of other, others of us. And maybe it could be the difference between having a more functional family and not, like that could be one difference that, you know, um, can you can make a huge impact on your life. And I guess I think about that now with, you know, raising kids 
And I think, man, my kids have such a loving environment at home. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, I'm so soft on them. You know, I, I try to be strict, but it's so hard for me to be strict too because I don't really want to be tough for my kids, you know. And maybe it's a generational thing too, but it's just so different to how I grew up and how a lot of us would have grown up, I think, with our families. God, I talk um, about this so much. I talk yeah. about it so much, yeah. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that we're softer or we're just, we don't raise our voice and we're very aware of that kind of... Uh, abuse but <laughs> it is abuse we, no it's we didn't turn out too bad did we yeah, well i mean but you know it was hard though right maybe there's a there's extra years we spent trying to recover from that stuff which could be put into something else i don't know um no it's a good question but then you know you go on a group like subtle asian traits or something and man there is just so much trauma from you know lots of people processing about their identity and where they fit in the world. Um, whereas I want my kids to grow up with a different sense of themselves, a lot more self-confidence with a lot more kind of strength in their kind of cultural identity as well. Um, I mean, yeah, and yeah, which has it okay. I mean, and I think in a lot of ways, I am kind of grateful that I had such a hard upbringing as well, you know, because it turned me into the person that I am. I yeah. mean, I couldn't have got here otherwise. Um, but I don't know, maybe some of the worst parts you could probably shave off. You don't really need to go through that much pain, you know? <laughs> the funny, that's the, such the fu funniest thing I asked uh, the writer, Fuk Zhang, he wrote Saigon. Uh, yeah, do you know that? that? Yeah, I've seen the book, yeah. Yeah, I had him on and then I asked him the very same question. I was like, hey, if, if you could turn back time, you know, would you would you keep the abuse, you know, because he and his dad uh, had, had a terrible time. And then he was like, uh, okay, let's just shave off 50% of it. I'll keep 50% and then the other 50 I can do without. And I think there's a, what that's probably what you just said too. Yeah, I mean, like the worst parts of it, I think are not cool when I think about some of the, you know, some of the things that happened. Um, and that children should be more protected than that, you know, than being so exposed to like adult dysfunction essentially, right? Um, but in, an, in another way, I guess, like for those of us who can survive that, we become really resilient, but we're really kind of, you know, and we're really tough. And we're, I mean, but then there were, not to say it was all bad, obviously. And I think that some of the things that protected us was probably there was this kind of push to make that our families wanted us to become better, like in some ways. And even though that's really hard for some people, not everyone makes it, right? Some people kind of really don't cope with that pressure. But for someone like me, like I basically, I was good at school, so I kind of did okay. And I did aspire to like more because that was the message I got. Um, but you know, I, but I think it's also not good to be so aspirational too. You lose a lot of things. Like I think a lot about how um, when I was growing up um, at some point, um, so I grew up in, you know, kind of the edge of a Vietnamese area. So I wasn't that in the heart of it, but I wasn't far either. But then um, our neighbors were like these Vietnamese people who moved in. Well, my, my parents were so down on them because they were basically like what they considered like lower class, you know, like, you know, they, they, they were like this kind of aspirational middle-class people. And, you know, the kids have to go to uni and we have to do things like, you know, to bring glory to our family or something. Right. Um, but then our next door neighbors, like my dad, you know, would look down on them a bit because they were from like, I don't know, um, where were they from? Like the deep the South Delta. Of Vietnam. Yeah. The De uh, yeah. Delta, even further South, you know, and Yang Dan Ka, as my dad would always call them. Right. But, you know, when I think back to my childhood, I mean, it was a bit unfair. I think those people were really good to us and they were really good to me. And they really kind of helped me have like this kind of strong Vietnamese kind of culture in my life that I might have missed out on completely because my parents were so willing to drop a lot of stuff, like in the kind of pursuit of like- Assimilation. And success, yeah. But like those people, like they, like, you know, they taught me like really basic, like, you know, phobia games and stuff. Like there was a game, I don't know if, 
I don't know who else has played this game, but they used to call it back long, where you get a thong, like a flip-flop thing. Uh, what, no, what do you guys call it? We call it a thong here. Um, yeah, and you basically, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you basically throw like throw it at the can. Yeah, at the end of the driveway. So you run up and down and, you know, or, or I have a good memory of like learning how to make kites out of like plastic bags and bamboo sticks and just like, uh, or playing cards. We used to play cards a lot, like being learned. Like, like I'd play like every day. I was totally ace at it. But that's the kind of stuff like my dad totally disapproved of. He like really disapproved of a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm lucky that we ha- I had these neighbors for a few years there that really like played a big part in my kind of Vietnamese identity, I think. Um, and like, thank God. And I think like working class people in that way, they also keep culture in that way as well, because they're just pretty happy, like with a lot of that sort of like culture that they had back home. Like they didn't think that they were too fancy for it. They kind of maintained it. And so I got to inherit a bit of that too. So I don't know where they are now. Like I lost touch a long time ago, but I'm so grateful that that they taught me some of that stuff as well. We live in such a privileged uh, space, uh, you and I, um, in terms of having that experience of um, those people, because, you know, it is a thing. It's a thing in Vietnamese. Um, it's, it's basically our caste system, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's how I learned about class. Like, it's funny because Australia has this whole thing. I don't know if the U.S. has this exactly, but there's this whole kind of myth, which is a total myth that it's a classless society, no. um, which it totally is not. <laughs> but I, was, I would say that my first understanding of class comes from Vietnam, Vietnamese culture and like this kind of like, you know, that person is like fancy upper class person, you know, that we would, you know, look up to for some reason. And actually my dad was always going on, you should get a PhD. That's how you become upper class essentially. Um, and I always thought that was a really dumb reason to get a PhD. I'm doing a PhD now, but not for that reason. You know, <laughs> I don't want people to like, like be afraid to look at me in the eyes is what my dad would always say, you know? Um, and I, but I felt, I felt bad, you know, like that we kind of had this kind of attitudes and I'm quite internalized for a long time. It's only when I became an adult, I started to really unpack that kind of stuff. And now I understand what's going on. It's this caste system, like you said, mm-hmm. like, um, and I understand it even better now. Like now I, now I understand more about accents and Vietnamese kind of language, like, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's, how, look, and it's the same in every, I think lots of countries have this too, right? Like in the US, it's like when people from have a Southern accent. it's everywhere. I think it's ingrained in humanity. We have to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? It's like, that's the way people think. And, you know, that's, uh, but again, I think going back to the privilege of where you and I are, we are able to be living in gratitude that we got to meet people like that. And my my parents had a different approach. Uh, they were much, uh, much more friendlier because they had workers that uh, worked inside of our factory uh, in LA that were fishermen that escaped on boats and didn't come out of Vietnam uh, on planes the way you know um, a lot of families did. So we got to be exposed to you know food uh, in a very uh, it was very immediate for me because, you know, they would bring in your food a lot and we would, I was smoking at 13 with these guys, you know, these factory <laughs> workers. And, and I look back and I'm like, it, it, the privilege to, to smoke and to start drinking at that age with those people and talk uh, about uh, the lives. And, you know, they weren't officers. They were very, you know, they were very, uh, you know, you cut your finger and they, they whip out a cigarette and they break it and they put the, the, the fibers, the cigarette leaves on it. And it was just these multiple, multiple layers of, of life that uh, sort of, which is like home remedies of, 
curing things that come from sort of like this different world that I think it's a privilege um, looking back to, to, to have been exposed to neighbors like that for you. Yeah, no, I, I think so as well. I mean, and, and also there were other people around too, um, but definitely them, I, I've often kind of thought in, the, in recent years, just how important they were for me to have exposure to that. Because if, if they weren't there, I never would have seen that stuff. I would have missed out on something. And and I don't know, I mean, I, I think it is human nature, but I'd like to think that we can be better than this as well. Like, I don't think that we should always kind of live in judgment of others like that. That's, I mean, I know that's human nature. And of course I do judge others as well, but when I think about things like that, I think there are things, greater things at stake. And I, you know, go back to things like language and culture. I mean, we have something like the diversity of Vietnam is that what it's so rich about it, right? Would like, I loved when I got a chance to kind of visit some of the towns of the Delta. I just thought it was incredible. Like I felt a bit guilty being like kind of like a rich tourist though, right? So that's a bit uncomfortable, you know, when you kind of walk around and you buy something in the street and you think, wow, like I'm, I've got so much money compared to a lot of people here. And so that, and, and of course that's part of the trauma of like being a kind of Viet Gill tourist, I think like in Vietnam, um, it's so uncomfortable I find and, you know, I get, and then I get ripped off and then I feel bad about it. But then of course, what's ripped off like five bucks, I could, you know, I, I barely think about $5. So, you know, that, oh yeah, actually that's what triggered my, that first trip I went to Vietnam in 2010. I had the biggest meltdown on the street because I, I spent five bucks too much for like, um, what, what was it like um, the mango scene? And then just like literally like just was bawling my eyes on the street thinking I'm not Vietnamese, you know, like because I wasn't, I was from the outside, you know, I just had a full on breakdown for like, you know, I was half an hour or something. Um, but anyway, like I, at least like, because, you know, now growing, living in a Vietnamese area again, I'm so grateful that there are like Vietnamese grandmothers on the street selling like street food and all of that. Like it, it meant that I had the kind of like understanding that when I went to like Vietnam, I actually didn't, I actually found it like, like home in a way, like in a surprising way, I mean, even though it was alienating. And then I kind of made me understand, I'm not really from here and I never will be, but that I needed to understand that clearly. But in a lot of other ways, when I'm in Vietnam, I don't feel so alienated by it either because I got to grow up with like, you know, in a Vietnamese area and I got to like experience different kinds of people that that I think actually really helped me like feel still connected to culture and even now um, and I think that's where my motivation comes from to keep working on a lot of this right. stuff. Like, you know, and I, and I have like, you know, a long list of Vietnamese topics I kind of keep wanting to explore. And at the moment, I'm really interested in um, Vietnamese and Japan relationships, like throughout the 20th century. So I started doing some work on that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I think this is my only way of really kind of getting to know my parents in a way is through doing work. Um, yeah. because we can't talk about these things directly and then they're concerned I mean they're not interested in the same things as me anyway even if you could talk it's not like my parent, my dad has a really bad view of, of Japanese people I guess because of history as well and that was always a funny thing growing up whereas we used to have like it's, uh, there was another interesting experience um, which I want to write about was there was a time in my family's life where we had this huge house that they couldn't afford the mortgage payments were so high so then my, my parents advertised in the Vietnamese newspaper for boarders to come and live with us so there were literally like 10 random people living with us at any time, like just like we'll sit at the dinner table, divorced dads, you know, there was a guy who was um, a drug dealer, it turns out later, he got, you know, until we kind of kicked him out. Vietnamese um, grandmother with her daughter lived with us for a time, international students. One was from Japan, she was Vietnamese, but her family had ended up as refugees in, in um, Japan before coming to here. Um, Anyway, so that, that was another exposure where I'm like, I got to kind of meet all kinds of Vietnamese people. And so my, my sense of what it meant to be Vietnamese was pretty large really um, because we had that 
kind of experience too of just bringing in lots of random people and every night at dinner we'd sit at the table just totally unconnected by blood or anything just like together because of circumstance i went through the same thing 78 to 87 same thing we had a, a big 13 room victorian ran down house right in the middle of the city must have had at least 30 families coming through in and out throughout those years same exact thing I mean, there's a novel I should recommend by an Australian um, Vietnamese author um, called Anguli Ma by Chivu. And she talks about, and that book is about a Vietnamese kind of boarding house. And it's, it's but she kind of brings in like supernatural kind of elements too. But it's a really interesting book. I'll have to send you the, the link to it. Um, okay. But I think that boarding house experience, yeah, I didn't realize that you had that as well. It's such a weird thing. I often think about how, what a strange experience that is. Because a lot of people don't have that experience. They didn't happen to have like a big house. That's where I picked up my Vietnamese and my cooking. I learned yeah. a lot from it. We had a dude, we had a dude that lived there. Uh, he was this bachelor and he had a big tummy look and he never wore a short shirt. He's always in shorts and he always smoked and he just lived a very wild life. And I don't know what his real name was, but my dad always called him Asung, and we thought it was the funniest name and <laughs> we'd bother the guy. We'd be, you know, Dennis the Menace. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We we totally be Dennis the Menace on this guy Asung, and he would eat all of our chickens. Um, and he would trap birds in our. We had a big chicken coop. He found a way to rig up the, the the the, and he would get these birds and bring them in and eat them and invite us over to eat with them. And it was just a such a wonderful. When I look back, the the, the idea of the boarding house is such a a, a warm time in my life because there was just not. It was just wasn't just him but there's so many more characters that came in and out of the house I, I might have to write about this because this is let's talk more, let's talk more about that idea because i've often thought that it was just like something worth writing about and I, I, don't, I don't see enough i haven't seen enough written about it at all except for that one novel that she wrote um but yeah but i just think that it also will make us kind of you know appreciate just how diverse the community is like because i mean i also think back to like there was a, a man who lived there and he was gay and we all kind of knew it like I was told, to, I don't know how old I was, I was like 10. And then we would say, oh, you went birthday or whatever, right? And, but it was cool. Like it was, I mean, they would say, I guess my dad would say it probably, but it wasn't like he was, he was comfortable. Like he was like one of, one of us, like, and he was a great cook. He was a, a local chef in one of the Vietnamese restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, like he, he was a, a gay Vietnamese man and we all knew it, which is, I find really strange thinking about it now. It's, it's crazy. We had one too. His name was Chu Hung. He had leather jackets. He was a dapper, like motorcycle kind of guy, and he was gay. I remember it. He was very dapper, well spoken, and very elegant. Uh, and he lived up in the third floor of our uh, house. There's these characters that 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 do come up and 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 show up in his born. I mean, there was a, a ten year at least, uh, eight to ten year span. That um, I mean, it was uncles and aunts, of course, but then there were just random borders. Yeah, same. So then eventually, like my um my grandmother, so they they sponsored my grandmother and my aunt over. Yeah. So then we did start to have family there as well for a time. Um, but um yeah, and then the whole thing kind of blew up at some point, and then the borders all left, and then they ended up. I think my family ended up splitting basically. That my auntie took some of those borders into her new house, and then I didn't see them again most of them until like uh, my grandmother died a couple of years ago, and at the funeral there were all these people I hadn't seen in like 15, wow. 20 years. And I'd wondered what happened to half of them, you know, like they'd grown up like the, like the um, woman who, um, young woman who had been a, um, a student from Japan, she'd married like, you know, a Vietnamese guy, moved to Melbourne, another city, 
And when I saw her a couple of years ago, I was like, do you still speak Japanese? She goes, yeah, she still speaks Japanese and Vietnamese. And, and that's why, I mean, that's why she became, and that's, I guess that's why my interest in Japan came from, from a young age, was there was just this person who lived in our house who was Vietnamese, but yet she lived in Japan for like, she must have, I think she went to school there. So she must have lived there for six, seven, eight years before she got to Australia. But these are the hidden lives of the Vietnamese that you never see represented anywhere in writing or like, you know, in films. And you only get very simple kind of storylines and very simple kind of media reports. And so like, I mean, my problem is I don't have enough time to do all this kind of writing and this mm-hmm. work, but I really feel like these are good stories. These are good stories, right? These are like cool stories. I mean, you tell me, I'm like, I wanna hear more about this boarding house that you lived in. Like, I mean, I think that that's such an untold story. of You like, know, our one of my favorite images of that time, now that we're talking about it, was they would have six or seven women aunts or whoever would sit on the one of the main living room floors and they would nyakrao and then they would just sit and then my brother and i we loved it because they would just sit and they would tell stories and then you would hear like the 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 the, the head woman in charge she'd be like you know and it was just <laughs> very melodic and it's uh fun and gossipy and god it was just like music to my ears now when I when I you know when I envision it and you know my brother and I we we when we have uh funny things we'll call each other up and we'll, we'll bust out some of the things that uh some of the terminology that the women uh used and um you, where do you see where do you get you're not going to get that experience anywhere else you know in in life other than the boarding house in the 70s and 80s of these Vietnamese communities yeah, no, so we are privileged in that way, you know. I mean, maybe that's what kind of yeah. made us become like storytellers too, right? Like not everyone has these experiences, you know. I mean, yeah, like you meet other people where like their parents went to university in the, in, you know, in Australia or I guess in the US. Their lives are very different. Very like different. Their trajectory is very different. Whereas my family didn't do that. They were always, My dad was always frustrated. They didn't get another education here. And so he always kind of like felt unhappy with his, what he mm. ended up with, you know, he wasn't satisfied with working in a factory or doing kind of sewing um, work. But, um, but I think that's what has made me, I guess, kind of really quite flexible and broad in my thinking is because of all these experiences, like that meeting because of the things that they ended up doing, whether they liked or not, I ended up getting to meet people. And as a child, I guess, but children are free of judgment, basically. I didn't really have the kind of framework of the caste system in Vietnam. Like I didn't really fully get it. Like, I mean, I, I did and I didn't. Like I understood what my dad was saying that these people are not educated or whatever. But on the other hand, I was really happy to hang out at their house and, mm-hmm. you know, help them with their work um, and, you know, just go fishing with them and do that kind of stuff because I didn't get to do that at home. It was fun. They got to, they enjoyed their life. That was the thing. Like, I think like, you know, they'd, they'd invite my family over mum or whatever, and they just genuinely like had a good time. Whereas I think that's why I think sometimes being a bit kind of middle-class and uptight. And I feel this now, you know, like, um, so like now I'm like an uptight middle-class parent, I think, because like through um, daycare, like my, when my daughter uh, goes, there's a Vietnamese family, they're from Hanoi, like they're recent migrants. So it's been great. It's forced me to speak, even though I think the Hanoi dialect, I kind of struggle with a little bit since I don't have all the vocab. But then I feel like an uptight parent because when I go over to their house, you know, she's always like giving the kids heaps of treats and like bringing out the junk food and stuff. And I'm always like, oh my God, you know, I'm trying to limit their junk food. And she's like, just, just just tell me to relax, you know, and they're eating like fried food and stuff. And it was at home. I'm always like, kind of like trying to moderate some of that stuff as well. Um, but it's just, it just, but, it, but be, hanging out with them brings me back to my childhood a bit. And it's funny because in a way I can reassure her because I'm actually like her kids. 
she's like my parents, even though she's wow. younger than me, mm. you know, like she's worried about the kids, you know, not speaking English well. And I said, don't worry about it. Yeah, believe me, in the end, English is going to be much better than the Vietnamese, you know, because they're growing up here. Inevitable. Yeah, but it's kind of like just reminds me of like when my parents would give me the kind yeah. of junk food when I was growing up. I had heaps of McDonald's growing up, like, you know, because I married a, a white Australian guy and his, his parents would never give him as much McDonald's as, you know, or Pizza Hut or whatever growing up. Whereas I had heaps, I mean, I had a lot of good Vietnamese food too, but alongside that, I had heaps of junk food as well. Because, you know, for my parents, they didn't kind of differentiate between like, that's just like Western food. And they didn't really think about the calorie kind of count of this kind of food. So that's me now. I'm thinking, oh my God, like my kid's eating too much bad food. So I've become this kind of like slightly uptight, you know, middle-class parent that I'm, but I don't, but I, but I don't want to be like that, you know? And that's why when we're at their house, you know, and I really appreciate the generosity, you know, like I think she's always giving us stuff. And even now when we see her at soccer and that she's like always giving the kids like, you know, she's always got heaps of food on her. And that's what makes me feel like I'm not like that either. I'm too assimilated. I don't bring heaps and heaps of food with me and like that and, and, and treats and stuff. Right. Whereas the Vietnamese moms from Vietnam do, you know, that's what they do. They're good at that. That's how, that's the culture that they're kind of used to. Whereas I've kind of changed through, yeah. you know, growing up here. You know, um, I feel like you and I are kindred spirits in that we have a, such a wide range of interests and things that we've pursued in our life. Right. And yeah. I feel like um, it's a two part question. The first part is, uh, did you ever feel uh, this sort of pain of not being able to kind of organize the different directions and organize the time and organize the the sort of the focus? So that's the first question, like how you mitigated sort of that feeling. And the second question is, are you close to your point? Because uh, I'm I'm in it right now. I'm I'm finally at the point in my life where I'm like, okay, this all makes sense everything I've ever done is finally being funneled into the podcast. And I can now talk to everybody about anything or I can have enough sort of a basis to to fire off questions that I'm interested in. And it's built up my curiosity and it comes from the the, the broad range of, of experiences that I have. So I'm I've reached a point where I'm like, I'm so happy that all of this could be focused into. So the first part of the question is like, you know, uh, did you, you ever try to make sense of sort of like a lot of the because we haven't even gotten into I don't know if we're gonna have time to the bioethics the the gestational diabetes of, of women uh, in your PhD Th these are huge uh, divergent topics that that are amazing and so you know two questions two questions in one yeah, and, I, and probably you'll need to edit some of this because we're talking for ages now and no one needs to hear this whole conversation. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, no, I thought about it has been a huge source of, um, um, I don't know how to describe it, um, not pain. I wouldn't say like it's been hard, like it's been a great joy, in fact, to be so multifaceted. But it's, a, it's been a struggle, though. Like I, I think I've always longed to have like one clear path. And I, I've definitely felt this tension from a very young age. Like I remember I do like these quizzes in high school where you like, you know, you kind of answer some questions and I tell mm -hmm. you what's your ideal career path. And I was always split between two or three ways. doesn't matter what quiz it was. I never got one answer. And then I forced myself to go, okay, I'm going to study psychology. But then when I got to psychology, I was like, well, it's not really for me. And then I kind of really liked my minor, which was in linguistics, which I liked more. So in the end, I kind of ended up majoring in linguistics by studying an extra year and finishing a double major in psychology, even though I wasn't kind of totally sold on the subject either. Um, but even by the end of that, I was kind of skeptical about science and all of it. And then I ended up doing 
uh, other studies. So I'm like, and I'm, and I'm a nerd, so I kind of like, that's how I process things by studying. So actually, to, to, but to bring in the bio, bioethics thing, because, you know, at some point later, I became interested in um, public health and wanted to kind of apply some of this stuff. But then after public health, um, working out for a while, I got a bit skeptical about that. And then I ended up studying bioethics. So that's why I can never commit to one discipline. I can't really, and I think this probably does relate to this whole thing about being caught between cultures identities mm -hmm. and then I really manifested that in pretty much every aspect of my professional life as well I never really could fully commit to one path mm -hmm. because I ended up being kind of I mean but yeah but I'm basically everything in the end like I'm I'm not like an expert expert it's like I'm not an expert on being Vietnamese I can only speak about my experience of Vietnamese-ness right um Australian-ness I'm Australian but you know I'm any kind of one version of Australia and like it's it's kind of manifested itself in all those different ways. And I, I would say I did struggle with it for a long time until probably about five or six years ago. I think I finally, maybe like my mid thirties, I guess maybe I was pregnant probably by that stage. I did kind of feel like I'd finally reached a, a stage of real self-acceptance that maybe I would just never really find one true path. That just wasn't gonna be my life. But it took like a lot of struggle to get there, I have to say, because it goes against what society tells you in every society, I would say, like including, you know, definitely in Vietnamese society where it makes more sense to just like study medicine, be a doctor or something. People get that. People know where to put you. When you kind of take some kind of strange divergent paths that no one quite understands anyway, you don't kind of then, you're not easily slotted in anywhere. You don't, in that caste system, it completely breaks down with people like us. It doesn't, we don't really fit in. Like even that's why the class stuff, like I feel like I'm kind of across classes a little bit too. Right. Yeah, you know, and I end up meeting different kinds of people all the time. Like, I mean, I still probably bias towards middle class people, I guess. But even so, like, I'm I'm always interested in people. I always meet. I always have time for people. I, I really, really value that as a kind of foundation for my life. That everyone's worth talking to. Like, you know, that mm -hmm. I'm open to everyone. Um, I and it's like even now when people reach out to me, I always respond to people. I don't always necessarily like you know prioritize them. That's one thing. But I'm certainly not going to reject them just because they're yeah. like you know, I don't know, like whoever they are, like young people reach out to me. I always kind of respond to young people, you know, like, so I, I really believe in like making society a bit flatter rather than hierarchical. Um, so, but then that does mean something about, I guess that probably explains why I can never make my own life hierarchical. I can't put one thing first. It's always yeah. across things. So yeah, so that, that's, I guess that's the answer to the question. And I guess it does relate to being this Vietnamese like Vietnamese diaspora it probably relates a lot to that because I was never going to be fully Vietnamese and I was never going to be fully Australian either and at some point I just decided to be all of those things basically yeah, exactly and Great the answer. Part of question, what was the second part of your question again have do you feel like you've reached a point oh. where you're funneling and focusing all of the interest into one exclusive direction that you can now bring it all together or do you, um, do you do you think it'll come one day for you? Not exactly. Although I guess because I was saying before, think about politics. I started thinking because I saw how bad things got here recently with COVID um, and the impact, uneven kind of impact, unequal impact on our communities as well. And then it made me think. I wonder if someone like me has got what it takes to make it in politics. Not as a career thing for me I, I can't imagine myself as a career politician that would never make sense for me i'm not a career anything i'm just across <laughs> so many different things yeah i kind of thought do you know one thing that we talk about with politics too is like we need people with more life experience because often like at least in australia maybe the us is the same quite a lot of people go into politics not having done a lot of different things in their life same thing yeah so it's so narrow and then i thought what if someone like me i mean look, i don't know it just seems completely mad because the whole thing just seems exhausting politics really right <laughs> but 
you know, like for better or worse, you know, we need good people. And then I think, well, someone like me might just be kind of strange enough that I have such diverse life experiences that I've got training in public health and I've worked in healthcare. Um, you know, I know a lot about cultural and art stuff now because I do that. You know, I've worked in media, so I have quite a knowledge, knowledge of media. And I just have a lot of passing interest in lots of different industries as well, just because of the people that I know. And then I, you know, and, you know, like my, and my husband's work, I, I feel like I know his work quite well now too. So that's like international development, community development work. So I kind of have quite a lot of knowledge about that too. Oh, and he's also, my husband's a specialist on China. So he did a PhD on China studies. So I, I read his thesis, I, you know, edit for him. And so I know quite a lot about China stuff hanging around him for more than 10 wow. years as well. Mm -hmm. So then between all of that, I think, I mean, one path that could make sense to kind of bring it all together for me could potentially be some contribution to politics in some way. Yeah, I can see um, that. So potentially, but other than that, um, I feel like I am otherwise hitting my stride in a lot of these different areas because I mean, kind of chipping away at, you know, doing different things. So like, for example, like with um, radio work, since that first feature in 2012, I've met a few others since. And in fact, the um, a series I co-produced with, um, with Masako Fukui, we just got a UN award. We got an ABU UNESCO award for, um, it's called the Together for Peace Media Awards. And our topic was on languages, on multilingualism. And this award was kind of perfect. The award category was um, for radio was um, living well with super diversity. And that's basically, mm. again, even that series demonstrates, I guess, a real breadth because we covered all these languages, all these experiences, and yet we're all living in the same place, you know, so how do we make sense of that? So I think this is a recurring theme in my life, even, even the kind of work I do. I'm interested in how do you live with difference? How do you live with divergent viewpoints? because I think that is the great challenge probably in our societies too. Like in the US, obviously, that's a really burning question. And it, it is here for us as well. Like, how do we kind of reconcile and make this work? Because we're all so different. And I am a believer in common ground, you know, like, and I think maybe this is what the, the challenge of politics really, like, how do you work across different kinds of people to find common purpose and common interests and, or find some way to live in harmony with each other? It doesn't have to be perfect. I don't think, I really don't believe we need to talk to each other that much sometimes. I think it's kind of cool having separate communities that interact on different points. Like, you know, you, you see that like when you, you send your kid to a school, like a public school, especially, you see all these people like, you know, you're interacting with them. Even if in your normal life, you don't have much else to do with them. Um, but I think we've got to keep building that common ground. Otherwise we're kind of doomed, I feel. I don't know. I, don't know, this yeah, is my I agree recently. with you. I agree. Yeah, and it's sad. Yeah, you know, you see what's happening. It's savage. Like the way our communities are getting torn apart by difference. Yes. It's um, it's not good. It's like we're in a bad moment. I feel so. Um, yeah, maybe the the different life experiences I've accrued, like on a different kind of interest, I feel like I really understand difference, like in a really fundamental way, because it's such a big part of my own life. Like difference in my own thinking, difference with like you know, even in my own family. Just because we're all Vietnamese, we obviously have very different views. Mm -hmm. But I have, do you know what? Even though I've kind of said I had a high relationship, I have a relationship with my parents. Actually, I'm not right. alienated from. They see me all the time. They live. I don't live with them, but they live, um, I did think about it and maybe I still will live with them, um, but they live five kilometers away. So, you know, my mom's always so dropping close. around. Yeah, and my dad's always dropping by. I moved back to be closer to them, even if we're not kind of best friends or anything, we don't talk like that, but I really value the role that they have in my life as well and in my kids' lives. Um, and so I think if I can survive like the kind of family that I do, probably I can manage like difficult people in politics as well, you know? Well, Sheila, thank you so much for, you know, accepting my uh, invitation and spending time with me today and being patient with scheduling and, and you know, we're living in two very different uh, places, but 
we share uh, so much similarities in the way we um, our curiosity. Uh, and I hope to cross paths with you, uh, whether it's in Australia, US or Vietnam. And uh, again, thank you so much for for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to talk about this. And really, like I really valued it so much and getting to know you as well. Yeah, and I look forward to your next article or whatever you get into. I um, I can't wait. And uh, please send it to me if you have anything uh, coming up. Um, I'm always, I'm a fan. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of, of the way you think and the way you explore um, your the world around you. Thanks so much, Ken. It was so great to talk to you. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely connect in the US or Vietnam or or here, come, come, come visit. I'll, I'll show, I'll show you something about Vietnamese Australia. I would love that. Thanks again, Sheila. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.